we are a people of scripture-shaped imagination. The Christian scriptures witness to the activity and character of God revealed in the history of Israel, the person of Jesus, and the Spirit's empowerment of the early church. To be Christian is to become a student of the Word of God and all of its uniqueness and complexities. It is more than just learning the Bible's facts, events, and characters. It is learning to interpret the Bible well so that it shapes our imagination in ways that help us guide our present lives and decisions in ways faithful to the will of God as revealed in the scripture. The goal is not to be hearers of the word, but to be those who, like Jesus, the incarnate word, live the word. This morning, if you have a Bible with you, I would love for you to turn to a couple of places with me. The Old Testament text we'll look at today is from Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. And then also we will look together um, at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're present with us this morning have and are able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. We'll begin with Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, verses 8 through 12. They read aloud from the scroll the instruction from God, explaining and interpreting it so the people could understand what they heard. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. They said this because all the people wept when they heard the words of the instruction. Go eat rich food and drink something sweet, he said to them, and send portions of this to any who have nothing ready. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't be sad because the joy from the Lord is your strength. The Levites also calmed all of the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Don't be sad. And all of the people went to eat and to drink, to send portions and to have a great celebration because they understood what had been said to them. Now, if you turn with me to 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verses 14 through 17. But you must continue with the things you have learned and found convincing. You know who taught you. Since childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures that help you to be wise in a way that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. This morning, um, and don't get nervous, I, um, I asked if I could kind of sit down and talk to you this morning, in part because I think of today as less a sermon than a conversation if you have this red folder, um, you heard Pastor Josh read to us that we are a, a people of scripture-shaped imagination. And, and I want to reflect with you about that um, this morning. So I just kind of want to sit down and have a conversation, if that's all right. Um, I think this idea of having a scripture-shaped imagination for us as a people is, is really significant, but also incredibly challenging. And so let, let me begin by, by reflecting on a story. Um, and the folks upstairs are going to help me with some pictures here. 
Uh, but my, my grandmother and grandfather moved to Nampa several years ago, Harold and Edith Daniels, my, my dad's parents. Uh, my grandfather had been a minister in this area early in their marriage and ministry together, but had moved around all over the place. And like a lot of Nazarenes, decided to come to Nampa to die. Um, and so like a great homing beacon, they came back to Nampa and came here and spent the last few years of their life here. But my grandmother died first in 2004 and my grandfather just a few months later. But my grandparents, um, in many ways, um, were formative for us. And so when my, when my grandmother died, my family invited me to be, to officiate my grandmother's funeral. And I don't know that if it was my first funeral, I know I had not done very many at that time. And it was really an honor given how many preachers are in my family that my family would ask me to do that. And so I, I prayed about that and worked on it hard. And, and finally, I, I began to realize, and, and at that funeral over at, at Nampa First Church, I, I shared that when I think about Harold and Edith, I think of them as the Abraham and Sarah of our family history. Um, I love this picture, by the way. This is my, uh, my dad and my aunt. And I, I love that picture of my grandfather holding the, the, the Sunday school and attendance thing. Um, I was going to say I miss the old days, but I don't. Um, but in so many ways, they were like Abraham and Sarah. Funny story. My great-grandmother became a Christian at a tent meeting in Colorado, went back home, they really didn't have a church nearby and a way to get there. And so she started leading devotions out of the Herald of Holiness. Um, but my grandfather and his little brother, they saved some money, sent them to this little school that the Church of Nazarene had in Hutchinson, Kansas, called the Brazil Academy. And they, the stories are almost mythic proportion in my family. They had to hitchhike to get there. There was an oil rig driver that gave them a lift most of the way to Hutchinson. I love to tell the part of the story where my grandfather almost got kicked out because he got caught smoking at this little thing and uh, this little school. Actually, Joe Mayfield, I think some of you will remember, he was one of my professors when I was here. Joe was the kind of supervisor of the school and basically said to Harold, my grandfather, Harold, you got a choice. You can get right with God or you can go home and break your mother's heart. Um, and so <laughs> he got right with God and sensed to call the ministry out of that and went back home uh, and at the age of 19, he, he was 19, I think my grandmother was 18, I think I'm right in saying that, but, but they started their first church and they lived in the basement of the North Platte, Nebraska church and, and the part of the story that I know well, because it's been told around our table a lot, I tell it to my children, uh, he made $5 a week in his first ministry while they lived in the basement. And the, the part of the story that's really important, he made five bucks a week and the first 50 cents he gave back to God and the next 50 cents he put in a savings account. <laughs> And somehow they figured out how to live on four bucks a week. But, but 60 years of really faithful ministry. And, and they, in so many ways, were the Abraham and Sarah. And then I, as I thought about my parents and my aunt, their own uncle Jerry, and even in many ways, the carpenter side, my mom's side of the family has a very similar story. My mom's sister married a minister and my, uh, my uncle Steve became a minister. But the second generation, I love this picture. I think that's at my dad's first kind of preaching assignment in seminary. Um, and I love this picture of my Uncle Jerry and Aunt Thurl. Some of you will, would maybe remember my Uncle Jerry was pastor at Nampa First Church for a number of years, but most of their ministry, they got to pastor in California. And so they always looked cool like this and had nice, you know, we were always in the Midwest and not quite as cool looking as them. But, uh, but they were really, as I told the story, they're really the Isaac generation. I've been reading through Genesis again and, and reminded of what made me think of that, that 
Isaac's a very interesting character. In some ways, he repeats some of the mistakes that Abraham and Sarah made. But in many ways, he also moves the story forward. Um, but so much of Isaac and Rebecca's lives are really dominated by the promise that Abraham and Sarah had passed on to them. They're, forgive me, but as much as we waited for Isaac, Isaac's a kind of a boring story. He just li- kind of lives and carries forward the promise that Abraham and Sarah um, handed to them. And, and my aunts and uncles and my, my mom and dad have very fascinating stories about their own ministry, but so much of what I see happening in their life was, if you will, the promise, the, the faithfulness was so strong in my grandparents' generations that they, they had some challenges, but they really just kind of lived into, grabbed that baton, carried it forward. Um, they got much more formal education. I think my grandfather had the equivalent of about a 10th grade formal education, but but when it was time for my mom and dad, my aunts and uncles to go to college, I laughed that the promise was so shaping in them. None of them, you know, sat down like kids today to kind of look at all the plethora of options to say, now, which college or university will I attend? Their question was, which Nazarene college am I going to go to? And I think in their case, it was, is it Nampa or Bethany or Pasadena? Like, what, where am I going to go? Um, and in the third generation, myself, my sister, my cousins, I think of us as the Jacob generation. Uh, Jacob is kind of a fascinating part of the story, kind of problematic. Some of us pulled a prodigal for a little while only to come back. And it's a story about how we wrestled with God and we lived through the challenges of that, but ultimately were able to live into and carry the promise. But about the time my grandmother died, we were beginning to reproduce. And all of you know, my, my sister and my cousins, we were all starting to have babies. And I realized, no, this story is really not just about honoring Abraham and Sarah. This story is about where will Joseph take this? Perhaps Joseph will end up in the court of the most powerful people. Perhaps Joseph will, will live in ways that will be the redemption and salvation of a great number of people. And so I thought about what, what does this mean for us to carry this forward to Caleb and Noah and Jonah and Sophie and Will and Laura and all my cousins' kids? Like, what does it mean for us to live that forward? That was an important moment for me, not just because uh, it was one of my first funerals. In some ways, that sermon shaped the way I approach memorial services still and messages. But it was in that message that I realized I had I'd begun to read the scripture in, in a kind of interesting way. And I wasn't just reading the scripture in terms of, let me read the story of Abraham and Sarah and discover the five things God wants us to know from that story that all start with the letter B. Um, or whatever. I wasn't reading the scripture anymore just for kind of ideas or even guidance for life. But what struck me was how Genesis 12 through 50 had become so much a part of my bones. I'd read it so often, thought about it so often, sung it at some level so often, been part of it, that now it had become the lens through which I interpreted my own family life. The scripture had become like a pair of glasses that I put on to begin to see and imagine who I am and what it means to move forward in the world. And in part, that's what I mean by having a, a scripture-shaped imagination. Um, for if I, could, if I could borrow this morning a, a text from the book of James and mess it up a little bit, um, James would write something like this. Even the demons can win Bible quizzing trophies. And even Satan is good at quoting scripture in the wilderness to tempt Jesus, but they're still not really formed by it. 
And so this morning, part of the reason I want to sit down is this is such a challenge to describe to you the difference between and why the language that I use in this little notebook is studying the scripture is more than knowing its facts and its characters and its events, although that is important. But how do we begin to understand and see our lives through it? What's a scripture-shaped imagination and how do we develop one? Let me think about that in two areas this morning. And so at the risk of losing you, let me talk about a philosopher, one of my favorites, a guy by the name of Ludwig Wittgenstein. Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, as a young man, was really frustrated that philosophical language isn't very precise. Language is pretty cloudy. Sometimes I think I've said some things to Debbie and I thought she understood them and she oftentimes feels like she has said things to me and was pretty sure I understood them only to discover I didn't really understand what she was actually saying. That language is pretty cloudy and so Wittgenstein loved math. Math is wonderful. Numbers just kind of work. It doesn't matter what language you speak, what context you're in. Two is still a two. And three plus four equals seven. It doesn't matter where you are. And so Wittgenstein, when he was a young man, tried to get language to work that way only to kind of eventually give up and say, well, I can't get it to work that way because that's just not the way language works. And so he began to talk about what he called language games. And I, I think I gave you a picture of Wittgenstein and uh, hopefully a picture of an animal that he drew. Do we have that one? Maybe. Yeah, this is Wittgenstein. And this is a picture that he drew. Now, if you're looking at the picture, you may think it's a duck, right? Or some of you may think it's a rabbit. Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? The answer is, sure. Um, but Wittgenstein argued how you understand this picture is either a duck or a rabbit largely is shaped by various levels of context and language systems coming in. And so you begin to argue that we play certain language games. And let me just give you a quick example of that. So language gets used in different contexts in different kinds of ways. And so it's easy to think about this if we think about, for example, a basketball court. So on a basketball court, in fact, games are shaped by language. On a basketball court, dribbling is good, right? But in life, dribbling is not as good. Now, when you're cute like this little baby, you can get away with it. But the older you get, dribbling gets less and less cute, right? Like, so dribbling is a good thing here, but not a great thing there. On the flip side, traveling is a wonderful thing to do in life, or it used to be anyway. But traveling is illegal on a basketball court. You're not allowed to do it. Likewise, dunking can be quite beautiful on a basketball court. But if you're by a swimming pool, dunking can be obnoxious and kind of frustrating, um, so the point is just simply this, that language becomes ways that we see and understand certain aspects of reality. And so why does this matter? Let me give you uh, probably Wittgenstein's most famous quote. And his quote is this, a picture held us captive and we could not get outside it for it lay in our language and our language seemed to repeat it to us inexorably. Picture held us captive and we could not get outside it for it lay in our language and our language seemed to repeat it to us inexorably. It's kind of fancy language, but here's what Wittgenstein means. We get to be, we begin to use language in certain ways and we use it over and over in such a way that we begin to understand and see the world through it and it becomes a kind of picture. And if we're not careful, that picture can hold us captive. So back to the duck or the rabbit. Is it a duck or a rabbit? If you are told long enough that it's a duck, you will always see it as a duck and it will frustrate you when people see it as a rabbit. 
But if you're told that it's a rabbit over and over again, you will only and always see it as a rabbit and it will really make you mad that other people see it as a duck. A picture held as captive. I think this is important to, for us to reflect about. We're not the first generation that has had this problem, but we have it in unique ways. We have begun to get shaped by particular language systems, and we've kind of come by that naturally. Um, the next picture is of, we participate in these uh, kind of 24-hour news and information locations. Now, when television was first invented and uh, stations began to give us regular news on the channels, we kind of admire somebody, especially somebody who has become like a cultural saint, somebody like Walter Cronkite, right? And we kind of admire Walter Cronkite and think, man, if we could only get Walter Cronkite back today. And the reality is we can't get him back, but not because there isn't somebody with that quality or character or giftedness, but because the whole game has kind of changed. Here's why Walter Cronkite, I would argue, was Walter Cronkite. It's because when Walter Cronkite gave news broadcasts, there were no commercials. Channels saw news as a public service. They just gave it away. And because they gave it away, then they were shaped by this question, what does Grant need to know? And how can we inform Grant of that? Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a perspective or a bias behind it. Certainly, you can't escape that. Just the very fact that a news channel would pick certain stories and not other stories to share implies they have an interpretive lens that these events were more important for Grant to know than these other events, let alone how they told that story. But certainly, they framed it mostly in this kind of way. Grant needs to know what's happening in the world and how can we tell Grant in a way that helps Grant navigate his life and here, here's the news, Grant. But then we began to realize, oh man, more people are turning into the news each day than any other programming on the network. Why are we giving this away for free? We should sell laxatives. <laughs> we should sell medications that have strong warnings on them, but we should not just give this away. And so it became really important to continue to draw people. And now, who is watching which channels became more and more important. And so now the question is not, what does Grant need to know? But here's the question that begins to shape it. What does Grant want to know? What does Grant want to know? And what will Grant like? And so here's part of what happens. We become less interested in sharing with Grant what we think Grant needs to know in order to navigate life. But now we start sharing with him things that really don't matter to his life, but they're really interesting. Grizzly murders, bad crashes, celebrity scandals, right? Things that will draw and keep Grant's attention, but probably aren't all that helpful for Grant to make it through life, right? And then when news becomes 24 hours a day, it takes work to keep Grant watching. And so not only do we begin to tell Grant the things he kind of wants to know and but now we began to tell Grant things that scare Grant so that he'll be sure and continue to watch so he can remain scared and threatened or we can create conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy so I can't turn away, I have to keep watching. But we tell it in such a way that just continues to reaffirm Grant's views. Now, this is not brain science, right? So what has happened to us increasingly as a culture is we have groups of people who are constantly told, that's a duck. 
as a duck, and people who think it's a rabbit are not only stupid, they're evil. And constantly another group that keeps telling us, no, that is a rabbit, and people who think it's a duck are backwards and naive and bad for society. It is fun every once in a while to play this game when some event happens in the world to kind of turn on one channel for a while and then flip to another just to see how it's being talked about. And you can add to that the next slide, which is not just the way kind of news and information functions and all sorts of levels, but now add social media to that. And we all recognize social media, which was kind of cool. It started out as ways to show you how, what lovely dinners I eat on a regular basis or what fancy vacations we get to all go on. But social media outlets and networks also are wanting to sell us stuff and make sure that we watch for a long, long time. So they start telling us what we want. And then these algorithms begin to say, oh, if you were fascinated in that, so if that conspiracy got your attention, these conspiracies will really get your attention. And so we find ourselves just con continually going into these kind of echo chambers. And to use Wittgenstein's language, we find ourselves captured by a picture that we cannot escape because it is repeated to us in our language over and over again. And at some level, I don't know how to avoid that, but I will say what has been so heartbreaking in the last couple of years as a crisis in which we've needed to work together and pray together and decide together, it's become so apparent that some of us are duck people and some of us are rabbit people. And what's become so disconcerting, I think, for pastors and Christian leaders and lay people, and I think in particular young people in the church, is that these last two years of crisis have not caused, but have revealed that even in the church, and please listen to this, even in the church, we tend to be more shaped by or held captive to those particular language systems than we are by the language of the scripture. And by the way, that's only when we recognize that we are. For sadly, even here, we can often come to worship and not even realize that we are using a language system that we have been shaped by there, believing that it is the language system of here. And so I've come to realize that in many ways, the New Testament, so if we think about the text from 2 Timothy for a moment, Paul says to Timothy, hey, and, and this is what I think is happening there. In the early church, you have all these Gentiles who are coming in and they have this question, do we have to pay attention to the, all these, uh, this other stuff that's so Jewish? I mean, we know Jesus, can't we just have Jesus? And so I don't know that Paul knew he was writing scripture at the time, but Paul is essentially saying about the Old Testament, hey, listen, you can't throw this stuff out. For this has become the very way in which we understand the world. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching and reproof and instruction. In fact, I would argue for Paul, for Paul, Paul understands Jesus because he is so immersed in the language of the Hebrew scripture that when he encounters Jesus, he immediately goes, oh, I know who this is. Later in Romans, Paul, he will write about this faith journey and he will do things like this. When we were trying to become holy by the law, that was like Abraham and Sarah thinking Ishmael was the end of their story. 
the child they had had through their own effort. But life in the spirit is like Isaac, a child of promise. It's not something that we have necessarily worked for, but something we've responded to God and received as gift. Now you're not excited about this, but this is what Paul is doing. He is so immersed in the language of scripture that even when he tries to describe holiness in Christ, he uses old stuff to do it. I'm fascinated by the gospel writers, how often they quote the Old Testament, and I don't want to mess with you today, but often they quote it a little bit wrong. And I would argue it's because they're not doing research papers. They're writing about Jesus out of the scripture that has become so deeply woven in their heart and bones that as they tell the story of Jesus, they tell it through that lens. And so part of what I want us to experience and lean into today is that in order to be a people of scripture-shaped imagination, we have to be a people who soak in and dwell in and live within the language of the 66 books of the Bible. And we don't just use it as a fact guide. My wife was saying, like our children use, um, some of you will not understand this illustration. But if you're a video game player and you get stuck, I'm told that you can go to cheat sheets or cheat books. I think oftentimes we want to use the Bible that way. We get stuck at a problem and then we kind of go, oh, I should check with the Bible on that one. So you, by the way, if the Bible was meant to be used that way, it really needed a better editor. Um, <laughs> If they'd have just put all of the relationship stuff in one section and all of the, what do I do about my future stuff in another section, right? And so what do you do? You call me and say, pastor, what does the Bible say about X, Y, or Z? And I say, well, there's a few texts that are helpful, but you know what would be best is if you so dwelt within this and lived within it, it became the framework through which you saw and understand and interpreted life. There's one other piece that I want to think about with you, and that is, I think when we're children, or maybe when we first come to faith, we treat the scripture in a particular way. I'll call it a kind of wooden surface, um, very practical kind of way. As a child going through children's church and learning various stories, I didn't, I don't remember, maybe we did, but I don't remember stopping and thinking, or having a conversation about, I wonder what kind of literature this is. Like, is this person we're talking about, is this a historical narrative? Is this, is this some other kind of literature? In I don't remember ever talking about that. So I just kind of took it the way it was. But at times that can be kind of problematic and, and not a, a completely healthy way to continue to read the scripture. For the scripture didn't come kind of out of the sky and fall in one place as all one kind of literature. It, actually pretty complex and complicated. And the more we come to understand it and appreciate it, the more challenging it becomes. And so there's this sort of second stage that we move into when we begin to kind of get interested and fascinating and, anal and starting to analyze various aspects of it. So I want to tell you a story and, and hopefully you'll receive it well. Um, but I remember when I was a brand new professor at Southern Nazarene University, a few years before in a class, I had discovered that I got really fascinated with studying the Genesis creation narratives. And for the first time, I discovered that when the serpent shows up in the garden, he is not named as, as Satan. 
that the garden narrative just simply says, and the serpent was the craftiest of all the wild animals God had created. Now, I remember thinking, well, it's Satan, right? <laughs> and then I realized and discovered, well, we get that because of a couple of texts in Revelation that mention Satan as, the ser- as a serpent. And so we've kind of put those two pieces together, but the text really doesn't say that. And so all of that to say, I got really excited about some rabbinical literature. I got excited about some historical literature that described the snake. You know how like Pharaoh always has a snake on his head? And what serpents meant in ancient cultures. And I realized, oh man, serpents are oftentimes symbols of fertility. So I started to read the story differently. Like the snake slithers into the garden, says to Eve, hey Eve. Have you checked out the fruit? Oh. And when Eve looks at it, it's really tempting. It's like there's some sensuality. I realize, oh man, there's there should be a disco ball in the Christmas, like in the there's some Barry White music in the like oh, but like like I started to realize some depths of the story I'd never really studied before. So all I'd say, I'm in a class of sophomores in theology. It's new. I'm sharing with them some of this research that I'm doing, and it is bothering them. And I remember in particular, there's this kid sitting about right here who's still a dear friend and wonderful, wonderful person. But I could just see, he's like, oh man, brain matter is oozing out of his ears. And he's like, oh, this is, oh, this is so hard. Like, oh, this is so bad. And he says to me, when did we learn this? Like, when did we learn it's Satan in the garden? I said, I don't really know. So this is a true story. The very next day, I'm in a grocery store parking lot. Noah's a baby, Caleb's about five. We go to the grocery store and Noah fell asleep in his car seat. So we decided, okay, the three of us will stay in. Debbie, go on a reconnaissance mission. So Caleb and I are bored. So we start playing Bible trivia with each other. And we would often do this. And I'd say, so Caleb, who are the three guys in the fiery furnace? Oh, no, that's easy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Like he, he knew everything. So finally, after a few questions, he looks at me and goes, Dad, who is the serpent in the garden? And I just lectured on this the day before and messed up all my students. And I tell people, here I am in this grocery store parking lot trying to explain ancient fertility cults to my five-year-old, right? And it is not going well. And finally, he looks at me and goes, Dad, it's Satan, all right? It's just Satan. That was the end of the story. Now, I need to say, I don't know that thinking or reading the story that way matters, For in certain ways, in a lot of ways, the serpent operates the way that Satan operates in the wilderness when he tempts Jesus. And I don't know that our life or faith depends upon that. But what I do think happens for many of us is that we're actually not students of the scripture, but we're actually shaped by 30 or 40 texts that have become our favorite. Hopefully it's that many, maybe it's five or six. And that we actually have a set of convictions that we believe. That like are 30 or 40 maybe convictions that we are just absolutely convinced are true. And we think they're biblical, but we haven't really tested that. And by the way, this makes being a theology professor fun because then every semester you encounter students who are sure this is true. And even though you show them right here, no, he's not in the text. They want to look at you and say, oh, yes, it is. Right? And so you begin to get, I would love for you to begin to get fascinated enough with the scripture to actually not just treat it in a surfacey kind of way, but begin to understand and love its depths. But here's the other thing. For me, I realized then I got stuck there. And I remember very clearly being at an academic conference. 
listening to a paper about probably Isaiah or Jeremiah. And we were autopsying this book and dealing with all sorts of fascinating historical things and interpretive options. And I mean, I just remember being fascinated about, but then I re realized this has just become an academic exercise though at some level. And now the Bible for me has just become an interesting t set of old texts. And that there's actually a third move, what another philosopher Paul Ricoeur calls a second naivete. Where now I've learned to love the Bible for what it is and not for what it isn't. But it now becomes a text where not only do I believe the Spirit inspired the writers, but now the Spirit continues to speak to me as I read it and shape us as a community. And it has become a text that is not just simplistic, but rich and deep and complicated, but also beautiful and powerful and full of the Spirit of God speaking to us and leading us. And I so want you to get there. I so want you to kind of love it in that way. And I so want us to be shaped by a passion for the word that we bring it with us every week and we love to study it and we dig into it and it becomes that we recognize the other language systems that are trying to shape us, but we are giving ourselves over to the way that the scripture can shape our imagination. And for certain, at the end of that work, we just keep discovering that it is Jesus that the scripture keeps pointing us to. And it is the word that has become flesh that dwells among us, that the word keeps pointing us to and changing us into. Let me close this morning with just some practical advice. What are some ways to study the scripture? Let me just mention a few. There's a slide I think that has this book on it. So for probably about 20 years now, um, I have used what's called the daily office. We use the lectionary um, on Sundays that has four texts, a Psalm, an Old Testament text, a gospel reading, an epistle text. The daily office usually has two or three psalms and then an Old Testament reading, an epistle, a gospel text. For 20 years, I've kind of done that. And uh, I started with an NIV Bible and I kind of wore that out. And then I got an NRSV version and I kind of wore that out and the spine broke. And so NNU gave me a common English Bible. So I used that for a few years and I wore that one out. And, and a couple of years ago, um, when Eugene Peterson died, I decided I'm going to, over these next couple of years of cycles through the, through the, the daily office, I'm going to use the message. And so I bought a leather-bound version of the message. And by the way, I just want to show you this. So I, right when I moved here, I found on eBay a set of postcards from the old days that has an old picture of College Church and an old postcard also of the administration building on campus at NNU. And I also had pictures of the science building and the science lecture hall when it was cool. Um, but I keep those in there as a reminder to pray for you and to pray for the university and the students that, that I get to be with. But that's one way to study. And, and I was going to show you this book. This came out two or three years ago. It's a, a put together by a wonderful young woman called Sacred Ordinary Days. It's like a journal that takes you through the various texts of each day and gives you space to write and reflect on. There are lots of those kinds of options available. Caleb has helped us start a new podcast called New, new Creation Common Prayer. You may not be somebody who just loves to read. And by the way, that's okay. For 1,500 years, the church survived without the Bible being in everybody's hands. 
And so maybe the best way for you is to hear it each day. And, to, and there's all sorts of options, not just this one, but other options for you to hear the scripture on a regular basis. Let me give you another one. Um, I've decided this year, it's been a little while since I read through the Bible in a year. So in addition to the daily office, I started reading through the Bible in a year. You can do it by reading three chapters a day and two on Sunday. Um, and, uh, but I've added to that these wonderful guys on YouTube that started the Bible Project. And they have a wonderful video on every single Bible or every single book in the Bible. And so I will watch that and kind of get a set of a sense of a context for what I'm about to read. That has been so edifying already in this new journey. Um, there are study guides available. The next slide shows pictures of, I love the Wesley study Bible in part because it's part of the common English Bible, but also because it has the word Wesley in it. Um, and it's a, a great study Bible shaped from a Wesleyan perspective. Um, I love little guides like the Old and New Testament for everyone, which are really wonderful. Sometimes you want to read a whole bunch of stuff, but sometimes you just want to kind of slow down and study one book like Luke. Or, and those are excellent resources. Um, the Version app was actually created by a student at Southern Nazarene University and has become the most downloaded app in app history. Um, but if you, that's, that's a wonderful tool for some of you who just need something daily to, to encourage you to get into the word. Um, and, and let me just say about that, one of the things that kind of breaks my heart is that no generation in history has more tools, resources, technology, translations. No generation in human history has the opportunity to be students of the word like this generation. And yet every single year in the American context, in Christian colleges and universities and in local churches, the biblical literacy rate of the average layperson just continues to drop. And maybe the problem is we're drowning in so many resources we've forgotten how valuable the scripture should be to us. And so if I get closed with the Nehemiah passage, I love that these people who have been in Babylon for so long and have listened to the language game of Babylon for a generation or two now get to go back to Jerusalem and they get to hear the words of the Torah, the words that give them life. And as they hear it, they weep and cry and celebrate and learn how to love their neighbor. <laughs> I guess such a great text. And I say that to say, I can help you and some of the pastors here can help you find tools that will help you be a better reader of the scripture. But what I can't do, and I wish I could, I can't get you to fall in love with it. But I can pray that God would help us love the word and learn to see and interpret our lives not through other language systems, but to see and interpret our lives through the language of God and Christ and the spirit at work through the pages of the scripture. God, help us today. Help us to have a scripture-shaped imagination. Help us to, um, help us to be passionately in love with your word, with your revelation. Help us fall in love with its uniqueness and its complications and its, 
history and settings and people and the journey that takes us to Jesus, may it just become part of who we are, not just as individuals, but as a church. May we be a people who love and live out of your word. Give us a passion for it, we pray. Thanks for the opportunity to preach from it and to teach from it. And, but let it not just be theological or academic exercise. May your spirit transform us, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. I want us to sing uh, an old hymn in closing. It's a song I don't know if I've sung since we used to sing it Northwesterners back in the 80s. But I love these words. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty teach me faith and duty. Oh, beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. May that be our affirmation this morning. Let's stand together. Let's sing it together.
just, by the way, received um, a text that uh, Diane Bowles did pass away this morning, actually, just as we were beginning worship, and so continue to pray for Doug and for their family this week. The Christian scriptures witness to the activity and character of God revealed in the history of Israel, the person of Jesus, and the Spirit's empowerment of the early church. To be Christian is to become a student of the Word of God in all its uniqueness and complexities. It is, however, more than just learning the Bible's facts, events, and characters. It is learning to interpret the Bible well so that it shapes our imagination in ways that help us guide our present lives and decisions in ways faithful to the will of God as revealed in the scripture. The goal is not just to be hearers of the word, but to be those who, like Jesus, the incarnate word, go and live the word. And so may the God who just keeps revealing himself to us, may he help us to fall passionately in love with his revelation to us in Jesus and in our ancestors of faith. May we not just read the word, but may we eat it. May it become part of us. May we learn to live and love and imagine as people framed and shaped by the word of God. And may we go from this place and not just know it in our heads and have it in our hearts, but may we live God's word in our bodies and everywhere he takes us. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.